My wife's been in uh, New York City for the last few days with our oldest, which is fun. Um, man, if you want to uh, like really milk Mother's Day, ladies, just leave town for a few days. Uh, leave, leave some children behind and just let your husband figure it out as he goes along. She called me yesterday and she was like, do you need groceries? <laughs> I was like, I think I'm okay. Uh, we're still eating leftover pizza from like three days ago. We're, we're fine. They're being fed. They're being bathed and clothed like all of the, all the bare necessities, right? This week, we mark the end of, of Eastertide. And so 40 days, 40 plus days now ago, we celebrated Easter after 40 days in Lent. And 40 days from Easter Sunday marks what we know as the Feast of Ascension, Feast of the Ascension. This is the moment when Jesus ascends into heaven. This is one of our other texts for today. Let me read it to you quickly. This is Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the time or the period that my father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. The word of the Lord. So this business of, of ascension, it's odd because this was once thought of as like the high holy day of the church. This is the announcement, the day when Christians rejoiced that God has made Jesus king over all the nations of the earth. And now it's just a Thursday. It, it came and went, and most of us didn't pay any attention to it. But there are a couple obvious tensions when it comes to ascension. Some things that I think we need to name and to discuss. Both the claim of the ascension and the reality of the ascension. What the ascension announces and then how it all happens. First of all, ascension claims that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, if Christ has been given dominion over all the earth, it doesn't appear as though he's doing a very good job. We take a look at the world around us and we say, man, if Jesus really is Lord, if he rules and reigns over the earth, what is going on? Woody Allen once joked, if God exists, He's basically an underachiever. The ascension is so unbelievable because all we have to do 
is look around. This horrific war that's still being waged against Ukraine. Mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting in our own country. The ascension is difficult because what it claims and what we experience seem to be at total odds with one another. The second tension that we experience with the ascension isn't just the claim that Jesus is Lord, it's the sheer unbelievableness of the ascension happening at all. The imagery of the ascension is maybe, it's maybe some of the corniest imagery that we have in the scriptures, right? This is like the really cliche Jesus lifted up into the sky, surrounded by clouds. There are a lot of bad pictures I could show you right now. But this is some of the, the corniest images of Christian faith that we have. All hinges right here on the ascension. He's whisked away on a cloud somewhere. And there's something about it, imagining it, trying to picture it, that just seems too fantastical. All of Jesus' life, all of his ministry, it's compelling because it's just so earthy. It's so compassionate, pouring so much care into the world, doing everyday, normal kind of stuff. And now here he is, exiting stage heaven, disappearing into the clouds, being whisked away on some sunbeam. Why do you stand looking up toward heaven? The two angels asked them. But of course, where else would they be looking? We get dismissive of the ascension because ever since the 16th century, we've known better than these ignorant disciples, right? We've known better about how the world and the universe works. The 16th century, by the way, is when we get the, the heliocentric model of the universe. So we know the earth isn't flat. It's not a disc-shaped place around which the sun and the stars all revolve. The earth isn't floating on some body of water with the underworld below and the heavens above, just beyond the clouds. We know that there isn't water beyond the clouds being kept at bay by this, this sky-colored bowl sitting over the earth, holding back the oceans of the universe. <laughs> we know all of this. We know better. So up can't be the direction that Jesus went because up for us is down for someone else. This isn't the way the universe works. So it's way easier for us to ignore these claims altogether. This is why we tend to ignore the ascension because it reminds us that we live in a different age. A world removed from the world of Jesus and the disciples. So rather than wrestle with it, rather than wrestle with the claims and the reality that the ascension announces to us, it's easier to just ignore it, not pay too much attention to what's going on. So let's talk about them for a minute. In a world of mass shootings, of child cancer, 
of restaurants getting our orders wrong, whatever the injustice is to you, it does seem that injustice is everywhere. That pain and wrongdoing is everywhere. And one of the questions that we as Christians have to wrestle with is, when will God put all of the wrongs to right? And why hasn't God done it yet? And our usual responses, they have something to do with, well, this is a fallen world. Well, we just need to trust God. You know, God's given us the power of forgiveness. These are kind of the typical responses that we give. And usually when we mention something like the power of forgiveness, we think that that's typically reserved for us. But the people out there who are doing the real injustices, bringing real suffering, bringing, bringing real pain to the world, to others, they don't get forgiveness, they receive justice. If you ask the average American churchgoer to describe God, well, we could just do this right now. If you had to describe God in a word, how would you describe God? Almighty, loving, loving, loving. Love is typically the number one answer given in response to who is God or what is God like to name an attribute of God. And it's not wrong. Scripture is affirming God is love. Some of our follow-up descriptions tend to be things like compassionate, merciful, welcoming, inclusive, almighty, powerful. But very few American Christians, especially even fewer white American Christians, tend to describe God as just, that God is just, which is odd, isn't it? Because when we think about it, so much of the Old Testament is this recurring theme, this revelation that God is a God of justice. The entirety of the scriptures bear witness to this fact that the problem of fallen humanity is so serious, is so grave, that nothing short of divine intervention, nothing short of God's justice can rectify it. Yes, God is love. Yes, the gospel is about grace. Yes, Christianity is about forgiveness. But for Paul and for the prophets, what is absolutely central to their message is the righteousness of God. In English, righteousness is a noun, it's, it's a thing. But in our biblical languages, righteousness is not a noun, it's a, it's a verb. Righteousness is a verb, which means righteousness isn't just an attribute of God, part of who God is, Righteousness is the activity of God. It is what God does. Why are you looking up to heaven? The angels ask them. Every Easter season ends with this question. Why are you standing there looking up? And the obvious answer is that we are looking for the kingdom of heaven because we know 
We live in this world. We live in the world of wars and the, war, and the world of, of poverty, the world of injustice, the world of suffering, the world of pain. And we look up because the world is not yet what God declared it was at the beginning. It's not yet good. Righteousness has not fully come. And so we look and we watch and we wait because God has promised us. God has promised us in Jesus Christ that a better world is on its way. And part of our Christian witness, part of who and what we are called to be and to do, the hope to which we hold, is that one day from the right hand of the Father, Jesus will return, bringing heaven with him, and all that is broken will be mended. And our call is to live like that's actually true. Still, how is ascension possible, and exactly what does that mean? This is hard because if we believe Christ's risen body is in fact a body, flesh and bone, we have to ask the question, where is that body located? If it's not locatable, then in what way is it a body at all? For sure, the ascension doesn't mean that the resurrected Christ just went away, taking his body with him out to some distant place called heaven. That's not what we're claiming. Jesus didn't fly away to outer space somewhere. He's not waiting in some far-off galaxy for the moment to return. Ascension, I need, we need to hear this today. Ascension does not name a change in him, but in us, in our world, and in our experience of him. When we talk about Jesus being at the right hand of God, we should realize that that right hand of God is not a place. It's not a, a location. It is the position, it's the locust of God's action in creation. Because of texts like these, we've been conditioned to think of heaven as a place and certainly as a place that's out there because we don't see a whole lot of it here. But heaven names a situation not a sight. And to say that Jesus is there at God's right hand in heaven is to say that Jesus is in that situation of God's action in creation, which is to say our humanity is bound up in it as well. This is the reality of the ascension, that Christ being human, being one of us, has carried our humanity into the divine presence of God. This is the arc of the gospel, that God from eternity takes on our humanity, takes on what it is to be a human being, lives his life, dies his death, is raised to new creation, and then carries our life back to God. That's the movement. This is the reality. 
that Christ taking our life to the divine presence of God means that our life is inseparable from God's life. Christ's humanity, both his living and his dying, is made integral to God's way of being. The God who lived, the God who breathed and suffered and laughed and ate and drank and partied and wept, that life, which is our life, is at the right hand of the Father. As Carl Rayner once prayed, Lord, you have ascended into heaven and are seated at the right hand of God with our life. You are coming back with that life in order to find your life in ours. This is the question that the ascension really presses into our hearts. It's the same question that Jesus asks in Luke's gospel, that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? On the earth. I don't think this is a rhetorical question. Part of what we as the body of Christ have to grapple with is that it's possible for us to lose faith. It's possible for Jesus to show up and find no faith at all. This is why we are the body of Christ, to remain faithful. It's not a rhetorical question. And looking around at the pain and suffering and injustice of our world is one of the fastest ways that we lose faith. But the challenge that we have, the challenge of faith itself is to trust that when those moments meet us, those moments of pain and confusion and uncertainty. The challenge is trusting that we've already been given the work that we must do. The challenge of faith is recognizing that while we'd rather wait, while we'd rather look up, we have work to do. We've been given a task in the world. And our work, that task, is joining God in God's work. We trust that a better world is on its way someday. We believe Jesus when he tells us, I'm going to come again. Heaven is going to meet earth in its fullness. We believe Jesus. We take him at his word. We trust that the better world is on its way. And then we remember that we are the baptized. And the baptized live not from the present moment. The baptized live from the future. The baptized live from that world that we trust is possible, that world that we trust is arriving to us. Our call is to be people who tip some of that tomorrow into today. Our call is to be people who live as though the good news of God's justice and God's righteousness are today, not someday. It's not on us to make the world a better place 
That's not what I want you to hear me saying today. It's not on us to just make the world a better place. Only God can do that. And we can't do what only God can do. We're not called to make the world a better place. We are called to be the better place that God has already made in the world. We are the better place. And this is possible because our life has become part of God's own life. Christ has carried our humanity into the heart of the divine. And this is the power that Jesus promises is available to us by the Spirit. It is not the power to control the world. It's not the power to control the outcomes of our lives or to secure a better future for ourselves. The power that Jesus gives us by the Spirit is like the power to forgive. It's the power to pray for our enemies. It's the power to reconcile those friendships that fell apart and feel unfixable. It's the power to turn the other cheek and to walk the extra mile, to not just give your coat, but your cloak as well. This is the power that Jesus gives us. And we have that power because Christ has taken our life into his own life. Our life, as Paul says, is hidden in Christ. That because he has died, you have died. And because he lives, your life can be made new so that in him we live and move and have our being. In the ascension, Christ has not abandoned us. Pope Leo said that Christ does not abandon those whom he adopts. But he has empowered us to be his body in the world, to be that better place in the world. So that as people are encountering you, they are encountering the risen Christ. So that as we face pain and suffering and confusion, uncertainty, hopelessness, we don't have to stand there looking up, but we can look at one another as the body of Christ. We can remind ourselves that we are the baptized, those people who live from the future, who are tipping tomorrow into today, announcing not that a new world is coming, but that it is arriving, even now, even here. My, father, my uh, friend, Father Kenneth Tanner, recently wrote this, and I think it speaks to what it is and who it is that we are to be in the world. He said this, it is a privilege to be the body of Christ in the world, the body among humans that is lived for all others, that prays, that serves, and that attends to God even when many humans go on about their existence without mindfulness or awareness or gratitude of life's divine source. It is a gift to be the body in the world that in gratitude and charity serves all other bodies. We trust that our gracious participation in the body of Christ, our life as his in the world, enabled as his very life in our lives by the Spirit, 
is a vicarious salvation that God intends and desires for humanity, for all persons. As we pray, we pray for those who cannot or will not pray. As we serve, we serve those who cannot or will not serve. As we forgive the unforgivable, as we have compassion on our enemies, we make up what is lacking and we are joined to, to Jesus. We are for all others as he is for all of us enough so that by and through Christ in us, God is saving the world. You as the baptized are the better place God has made. So let's go live from that world, tipping tomorrow into today by the power of the Spirit. Amen.